everyone, just to let you know, we'll start the presentation in about one minute. Everyone, once again, we'll start the presentation in about 30 seconds. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. Top five OSHA safety training topics, answers to who should be trained, when, and why. Sponsored by J.J. Keller. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine, and I'm moderating today's event. Thank you so much for joining us, and before we get started, there are a few housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speakers and organization are their own, do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise product or publication does not mean the council of the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speakers. If you have a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and press the send button. We welcome your questions at any time during today's event. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. Now, we might not get to every question, but the good news is unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. Also, after this presentation, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll tell you more about that a little bit later. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event to view this webcast and all of our past webcasts. Please visit safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash event. Or you, may um, or you may receive a link in a post-event email. With that, let's introduce our speakers. With us today are Trisha Hodkovich and Mark Stromey. Tricia has been an environmental health and safety editor at J.J. Keller since 1994. She provides content for manuals, handbooks, videos, signs, training materials, and online solutions. Tricia also writes the compliance-focused newsletter, bringing readers the latest news from OSHA, EPA, and the Department of Transportation. She heads publications for the construction and warehousing industries and specializes in subjects such as bloodborne pathogens, hazard communication, hazwopper, oil spills, signs and labels, and written plans. Mark has also been with J.J. Keller since 1994. As a senior EHS editor, he develops content for various J.J. Keller publications, specializing OSHA construction and general industry regulations. Mark is also an authorized OSHA outreach construction trainer and over the years has fielded thousands of safety-related questions to assist safety pros in addressing the, challenge the challenges facing them today. Again, we thank you all for tuning into this presentation. Trisha, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. All right, thank you, Alan. And uh, hello, everyone. So today's webcast is sponsored by JJ Keller Training. JJ Keller Training Solutions cover a broad range of topics and are available in a variety of formats. Training on demand, DVD, streaming video, video books, and more. So they all help you to meet your needs. Backed by regulatory experts and using the latest techniques and technology, our training solutions give your employees the proper instruction they need. On behalf of our sponsor, thanks for joining us today. So safety training is critical to ensure employees know how to perform their jobs safely and without injury or illness. We're going to cover five training topics today, powered industrial trucks, hazard communication, lockout tagout, 
bloodborne pathogens, and personal protective equipment. These are what we like to call bread and butter training topics. A lot of employers need to do training under these five topics. And hopefully you'll walk away from this event knowing more about who you should uh, train or who should receive training, when training should or must be provided and why providing that training is important. If you have regulatory or training questions during this hour, please feel free to pose them in the Q&A box and we will also save time for a Q&A session. So Mark will start us out with the first topic, powered industrial trucks. All right, thanks Tricia and welcome to everyone. Powered industrial trucks or PITs for short include forklifts, powered pallet jacks, stand up rider lift trucks, we got order pickers, that type of thing. Now, in fact, that's one major compliance issue. Uh, some employers have failed to train operators on all the types of PIT equipment they operate. Now, even powered pallet jacks require training under 1910.178, and that training needs to be equipment specific. Keep in mind, you don't necessarily have to train each operator on every pallet jack made by different manufacturers, but OSHA does prohibit allowing an operator who only has, say, forklift training to operate a powered pallet jack without additional training. That's the whole idea behind this uh, training for each type. OSHA requires that refresher training be conducted under certain circumstances. There's no set frequency, but you do need to retrain in five uh, separate instances. I'll read those off. First of all, when there's an accident or near miss. Second, when the operator is observed operating unsafely. Uh, three, when the operator is assigned to drive a different type of truck. That makes a lot of sense. And then four, when a condition in the workplace, it changes in a way that could affect that safe operation of that truck. And then finally, number five, very important, when a evaluation reveals deficiencies. Now, aside from that training, there's a whole different requirement. And that is OSHA requires operators, all operators to undergo a performance evaluation at least once every three years, very important. So throughout this presentation, we're gonna talk about what you do with your temporary employees. So we're gonna start out with um, OSHA's TWI Bulletin 7. That says generally the staffing agency, you know, the people you get your temps from, is responsible for providing generic PIT training. And then the host employer provides the site-specific training and then does the evaluation. That makes a lot of sense. The host employer, is most familiar with the equipment and then they control the conditions of the workplace. The training and evaluation, this is very important, should be the same for your temp workers as you provide your own employees in those same jobs. So we're not gonna um, not do that for our temps. If the staffing agency supplies trained PIT operators, you as a host employer have to verify that training. You just can't take their word for it. The host employer is gonna conduct a workplace evaluation of each operator. Uh, and that extent of the training and evaluation is based on the operator's past experience. And if they have a lot of experience, you're not gonna need to duplicate that. And then that training isn't gonna be uh, as extensive. OSHA goes on to say the staffing agency 
um, is if, if they're providing trained PIT operators, they're probably the ones that have the records, okay? The training and evaluation records. But in those cases, you as a host employer, uh, you may choose to maintain or store additional copies of those PIT training records. Um, no matter what though, if you don't do that, OSHA notes that the host employer has to know where those records are, right? And uh, they must be accessible to an OSHA compliance officer during an inspection. So you got to be able to produce those. So as a recommended practice, both the employer and the staffing, staffing agency may agree to share training records to ensure both parties can verify that that training has in fact been done. Okay, now we're going to talk about the topics to cover in the training. So this regulation, uh, the requirements are performance oriented to permit employers to, you know, tailor your program to the characteristics of your workplace and to the specific types of trucks that you're operating. The reg outlines specific truck related topics that must be covered. These are what we show on the slide. We're not gonna go through all these, but it's a kind of a nice little checklist. There's a letter of interpretation from 1999. And in it, uh, OSHA answered a question on whether truck-related training has to be weight and brand specific. Um, they said the training isn't based on weight or brand, but instead on whether the trucks an employee may operate differ with respect to any one or more of the truck-related topics. So. If you're running different trucks, um, make sure you're looking at this uh, slide on the, the, the stuff on it, because that's going to be very important. Moving on, uh, workplace specific topics. Now we know, of course, that you, you got to do your workplace specific training in addition to what OSHA has in their reg. So going back to that 1999 letter of interpretation, OSHA states that whether an operator that was trained and evaluated at one of the employer's facilities and they go to another facility operated by that same employer, do they need additional training on these workplace related topics? And the letter goes on to say that depends on whether the two facilities differ with respect to any one or more of those topics. If there's a significant difference um, then training has to be done. If there isn't, no additional training or evaluation would be necessary because the two facilities are the same. So let me give you an example. Where all of an employer's facilities have substantially similar ramps or narrow aisles, you don't have to do any uh, training. Okay, that makes sense. However, additional training would be required if the loads to be carried at different facilities are different in stability or composition because the operator isn't gonna know that, you're gonna to have to train them. Okay, moving on to how to train. Now, the thing I like about 1910-178 is it's very well written as far as the requirements. Um, they have very specific OSHA's put very specific training requirements into this. So according to the regs, training must cons consist of a combination, <clears throat> excuse me, a formal instruction. What would that be? Well, that could be lectured. You could have a interactive com computer learning segment. You could show a video. You could hand out written material. Then you have to do practical training. That's where you go out to your training area and the 
uh, trainees uh, are going to watch the trainer demonstrate the different things, and then they're going to practice running the truck. Okay, they're going to do some exercises that the trainer sets up. And then finally, <clears throat> the third part is an evaluation of the operator's performance in the workplace. Now, we mentioned, uh, you know, employees having training previously. There's no need for additional training in a specific topic if an operator has really gotten um, effective training on it. Uh, and of course, that training is appropriate to the trucking working conditions. And however, keep this in mind, the operator has been evaluated and found competent to operate the truck safely. So if we look at this slide, we get a lot of questions on this about trainer qualifications. So OSHA was intentionally vague on this. Uh, they say only the trainer must have the knowledge, training, and experience necessary to conduct the training. OSHA said they left this performance-oriented because uh, they thought that the necessary qualification could be obtained in uh, like three different ways, and I'll read those off. They're not on the slide. So one way they could have the knowledge, training, and experience would be through years of operating a PIT and knowledge of safe practices and the actual OSHA regulation. That's a requirement. Another way could be going to a trainer, the trainer course in forklift or, or something like that. And then finally, uh, a combination of experience and training. So those are the, they're pretty vague if you really think about it. But like I said, that was OSHA's intent. So I do want to point out one thing. There is a OSHA letter of interpretation from 2003 that's still valid. And in it, OSHA laid out some criteria for the trainer. And I find this really interesting. That LOI says a trainer must have operated the type of equipment they are training operators on so that they can provide adequate instruction on how the equipment works, you know, how it handles, all that type of stuff. So if you have different types of equipment and one instructor can only operate one type, they can't train on any of the others. So very important. Now, as, as the employer, you know, you're going to designate someone you can feel that can teach the safe operation principles in an understandable manner and, you know, ensure that the operators do in fact have the proper skill and knowledge. The trainer is going to sign off on this evaluation. So uh, you got to keep that in mind. So when you pick a trainer, uh, be sure you have in your mind in case OSHA comes on site, why you chose them as a suitable operator. Training records, uh, not every regulation requires them. It's always a great idea, um, but we're gonna talk about that documentation and training records. So you have to certify, actually certify, that's right in the regulation that each PIT operator has been trained and evaluated as required by the regulation. So put the information there, those three bullets, uh, make sure they're in that training record. Uh, the operator, excuse me, the certification must include the name of the operator, date of the training and evaluation. And keep in mind, these might not be all the same day. So if you do classroom one day, you're going to have to have a line for that. And then the demonstration, whatever. Uh, and then you have to identify the person or persons performing 
the training or evaluation because there may be more than one. Effective safety training programs not only help you comply with OSHA's requirements, but they also help reduce accidents and injuries, lower workers' comp costs, improve employee engagement and morale, and preserve your company's reputation. Whatever your company's needs, J.J. Keller Training can help with 24-7 access to hundreds of online courses and streaming video training across multiple industries. With our user-friendly options, training has never been easier. All right, you see a poll there. I am going to move this. And so if you'd like more information about our JJ Keller training, use the poll on your screen to select your interests. Each JJ Keller training program is carefully built by our experienced adult learning specialist and reviewed by our subject matter experts to be up to date, engaging and effective. And since JJ Keller training is sponsoring today's event, you're going to uh, receive that free forklifts white paper if you respond to our poll. Tricia? Yeah, the white paper is a good one. So we'll give you some time to make your selections on the poll. So let's take a couple questions. Uh, there are many rolling in now. Uh, let's see. What is the fine if we mess up on OSHA training? Right. So that's an interesting question because, or really timely, actually, uh, OSHA just increased penalty amounts. Uh, so a bit of news there. So, so if the agency thinks uh, a violation is serious, uh, it could cost just over $15,600. Uh, lots, uh, big cost there. Now, I know HASCOM and the Powered Industrial Truck Training, two topics we talk about today, were in the top 10 serious violations last fiscal year, something to consider there. I also think that about this, the dollar amount can multiply uh, if you violated more than one regulatory paragraph or if the training violation involves several employees, that's called per instance. Uh, now uh, for willful or, or repeat violations, <laughs> get this, the, the new penalty could be uh, more than $156,000 per violation, but your company size and good faith efforts, of course, could certainly bring that penalty down. Okay, good question. Mark, how about you? Yeah, I got a really interesting one. Um, it says, can we use virtual reality to do OSHA training? That is so interesting. Uh, you know, we've got this question that started when COVID pandemic started. The answer is yes or no, because some regulations require adequate or effective training. Uh, so you'll have to decide on a case-by-case -case basis if your virtual reality training is adequate and or effective. Another thing I know, sub-regulations require site-specific or job-specific training. For example, time for interactive questions and answers may be required. Uh, and OSHA does say effective training should really include hands-on instruction. So Trisha, I'm going to turn it over to you uh, for our next topic. All right. Excellent. Thank you. So let's look at hazard communication. The hazard communication or HASCOM information and training provision at 1910.1200H1 is the most frequently cited serious OSHA training violation for general industry. 
and it's OSHA's most wanted for training. So Mark, uh, why don't you we forward the slide? And so I'm gonna tell you, recently uh, a company was cited for failing to provide effective HAZCOM information and training for workers who were required to work with corrosive cleaning chemicals. And because one of the company's other locations was cited for a similar violation, the new violation was considered a repeat violation. So OSHA proposed a $60,000 fine. The, the longstanding HASCOM standard remains one of the most confusing OSHA regulations affecting over 5 million workplaces. Even before its changes based on the globally harmonized system or GHS in 2012, paragraph H was cited anywhere from 2000 to over 3000 times every year. And we will examine the who, what, when, why, and how of the HASCOM training provisions today. You must train all workers who may be exposed to hazardous chemicals under normal operating conditions or in foreseeable emergencies. A foreseeable emergency means any potential occurrence that could result in an uncontrolled release of a hazardous chemical. For contractors, the standard requires that the host and the contractor engage or exchange information so that each can train uh, their own workers. Staffing agencies and host employers are jointly responsible for training temp workers. Staffing agencies must at a minimum provide generic training and the host employer holds the primary responsibility for training since it uses or produces chemicals, creates and controls the hazards and is best suited to provide temp workers with site specific training. Refer to Temporary Worker Initiative or TWI Bulletin Number 5 for information on temp workers. Office workers, bank tellers, and others who encounter hazardous chemicals only in non-routine isolated instances are not covered. OSHA does not specify who can present HASCOM training, nor is any formal certification required to do so. You, the employer, are responsible for ensuring your workers are adequately trained. So you decide who's qualified to conduct training and OSHA allows contractor provided training. Training for each worker needs to cover the details of the written HASCOM program, including information about shipped container labels and any workplace labeling system you use. For example, if in-house labeling includes HMIS or NFPA rating systems, workers must understand what these systems mean and how to utilize the information. If you still have hazardous chemicals labeled under the old HASCOM standard, the one prior to 2012, you must provide training on the different labeling systems to ensure that workers understand that the lack of pictograms or hazard statements and so on does not mean that the hazards don't exist. Workers must understand that the labeling system for ship containers has changed since the purchase of these items. Ensure that workers are aware of where they can get all the information on the hazards of these chemicals. Another training element, safety data sheet or SDS requirements. This includes how to obtain and use the hazard information on the SDS, including the format, if you are maintaining material safety data sheets or MSDSs for products received prior to June 1st, 2015, 
you must cover the differences between MSDSs and SDSs and how to utilize the MSDS. Here are the remaining training elements. What operations have hazardous chemicals, including byproducts, location and availability of the written program, chemical inventory and SDSs, how you monitor for hazardous chemicals, hazardous chemicals in the work area, and measures uh, that workers can take to protect themselves, like work practices, emergency procedures, and personal protective equipment. Training is required at the time a worker is assigned to work with any hazardous chemical and whenever a new hazard is introduced into the worker's work area. This requirement for an employer to provide updated training is based on the hazard, not the chemical. So if someone is working with a flammable solvent and another flammable solvent is introduced, uh, the uh, training does not need to be updated. However, in this case, if a corrosive is introduced, the training needs to be updated. You may choose to initially train based on the chemicals. So if you have only a small number of chemicals, you may wish to discuss particular hazards of each chemical. If a new chemical has hazards that a worker has been trained on, no retraining occurs. If a new chemical has a hazard the worker has not been trained about, retraining is limited to the hazard. Now in multi-employer work sites, the employer is responsible for providing updated training when its workers are exposed to new hazards, even if these hazards are created by other employers. Refresher training is not required annually for HASCOM, but providing training once, then assuming that years later workers are still knowledgeable is a risky assumption. It's wise to set up a system for periodic training. HASCOM training is a good thing. It ensures information is provided, explains and reinforces the information presented through labels and SDSs, and offers an opportunity for workers to ask questions. Training is required to be provided at no cost to workers, and workers must be paid for the time they spend at training. The training provisions are not satisfied solely by giving workers data sheets to read. Rather, your training program is to be a forum for explaining not only the hazards of the chemicals in the work area, but also how to use the information generated in the program. And this can be accomplished in many ways. Audiovisuals, uh, classroom instruction, interactive video, and online training are good examples. Uh, however, OSHA explains that workers must also have the opportunity to ask questions and receive timely responses. The training must be comprehensible. If you give job instructions in a language other than English, then the HASCOM training and information will also need to be conducted in that language. If employees have low literacy, training must be provided so they can understand it, such as by oral instruction. And as I said, you can either cover categories of hazards or specific chemicals. OSHA consistently holds that training must be effective. So OSHA inspectors often ask their workers, uh, the workers at your site perhaps, if they know the location of SDSs, 
if they can list the health effects of chemicals they work with, as well as what to do in an emergency. If workers cannot respond properly to these questions, even if the workers had been through documented training, OSHA can cite you. And finally, you may be aware that OSHA issued a proposed HASCOM rule in February 2021. Changes are proposed throughout the regulation and mainly impact chemical manufacturers, importers, and distributors. However, if the rule is finalized, it looks like employers will need to maintain any new SDSs and train employees about new hazard classifications related to aerosols, desensitized explosives, and flammable gases. The hazards of these chemicals will not change, uh, just their classification. And it will be required that employees understand these classifications before they may be exposed to these chemicals at work. OSHA anticipates a final rule this year in March, uh, and it is possible that some portions of the rule will take effect 30, to 60 days after publication and other portions may have longer compliance dates. So we'll have to see. If you need help satisfying OSHA's HASCOM training requirements, JJ Keller also offers training content in this area as well. So formats include DVD, video training book, streaming video and online training course formats. So again, if you'd like, more information on JJ Keller training, select your interests on the poll. And we will also send you a complimentary white paper on HASCOM training. Uh, will you, uh, while you make your selection. So I think, uh, I, I think, uh, let me take a look here at the questions. All right, we'll take a question here on HASCOM. Under HASCOM, do we have to have employees sign off on chemicals they come in contact with? Okay, so with 1910.1200, paragraph H, uh, as we said, that there's a requirement to train your employees on the hazards of the chemicals, uh, the chemicals they're exposed to or potentially exposed to at work and, and how to protect themselves. It's all training there, uh, but there is another paragraph, paragraph E of 1910 to 1200. Um, there's a requirement to keep a chemical inventory and that's part of your written HASCOM program. And of course that inventory is just a list of the chemicals at your workplace um, that are covered by the standard and, and not exempt. Um, but in answer to this sign-off question, I, I am not aware of any requirement to sign off on chemicals. Um, okay, I, I think Mark uh, will bring us up to speed with our next training topic. You got it, Tricia, thanks. Next, we're gonna talk about Lockout Tago. All right, so your Lockout Tago program you have at your facility with most things, it's only as good as the training. OSHA requires you to train employees based on their duties and or exposures. This depends on whether the employees are considered authorized, affected, or others. Now, authorized employees, they need the most training and other employees the least. However, in all cases, employees must understand the purpose and function of your energy control program. Now, the authorized 
employees, they do the servicing, maintenance, and repair. They're the ones that put the locks or and or tags on and follow those lock or tag up procedures affected employees. Well, they're the ones that do the uh, actual operation on the machine. So when a machine is down uh, for service or maintenance, they can't run it. So he or she is considered affected by the equipment being locked out. Now, affected employees don't do any service or maintenance work, and they have to stay clear of the equipment during repairs. Uh, other employees are those that simply work in um, the area. Maybe they're you know, walking through it or they have work activities based uh, where energy control, control procedures may be uh, used. So now that we have those three types, let's talk about the level of training the authorized employees, they need the most training. They have to be trained to recognize the equipment's hazardous energy sources, uh, the type of energy and magnitude available, and they must know how to isolate equipment from its energy sources. Affected employees, they have to be trained and it, they don't have to be trained too hard because they're gonna know when a machine malfunctions, but they do have to know uh, how to report that problem to authorized employees so they can come and fix it. Other employees are, like I said, they're in the area where lockout tagout are being used. They must be instructed about the lockout tagout procedure and about not trying to start or re-energize machines or equipment, which is locked or tagged out. That's pretty simple right there. Okay, again, temp employees. Uh, I, we, we said this already, they have to receive the same training as permanent employees. And regarding this lockout takeout, we now have TWI Bulletin 10, which states that the host employers is responsible for ensuring if a temp worker is performing activities covered by the standard, they're properly trained and they, of course, understand your uh, procedures and policies. Other topics that you want to talk about, let's say uh, when you're using just tag out, um, authorized, affected, and other employees must be trained in the limitations of just using tags because really they're just warning devices, right? They don't provide the physical restraint that a lock does at all, um, but they can't be removed without permission of the authorized person would be the one to put them on and to take them off and they should never be ignored or bypassed uh, in any way. The thing with tags is, you know, I've seen them in use in facilities, they kind of evoke a false sense of security. So you always want to use a lock and a tag if, if that's your policy. Now, um, when you're using tags, you have to let employees know that if they're filling them out themselves, they have to be legible and understandable by all authorized affected and other employees. Important, they have to be made of some kind of material that can stand the environmental conditions in, encountered. So if you got a real wet, humid environment, uh, you don't wanna use paper tags. Most tags are uh, plastic that, that I've seen. And finally, you have to securely attach these things to the energy isolating devices. So, you know, somebody can't walk by and brush it off or they can get accidentally detached because we certainly wouldn't want that. And moving on, when to train, uh, employees have to be trained initially or prior to performing service or maintenance on equipment or a system. Also, as needed for employee proficiency, 
and when there are new or revised procedures. That all makes a lot of sense, but the interesting thing is there's no yearly or annual training requirement for this regulation. Training records, always important. Uh, of course, the standard does require training documentation. Specifically, OSHA says you must certify employee training has been accomplished and being kept up to date. Again, that certification, just like the forklift, should include the employee's name and the dates of training. Uh, and with that, let's turn to our next training topic. Right, that's right. So bloodborne pathogens is our next topic. The freeze bloodborne pathogen sounds like something out of a medical book, and it was until 1991 when OSHA published a regulation under the same name. 29 CFR 1910.1030 is meant to protect general industry and shipyard workers from exposure to hepatitis B, HIV, and other microorganisms that are transmitted through blood or certain other body fluids. The regulation covers over 701,000 employers, and not just those in the healthcare industry. This regulation can apply to many in the manufacturing, service, government, and other industries. In fact, anywhere from 35 to 45% of bloodborne pathogen citations each fiscal year go to industries other than healthcare. Even though the regulation has been around for years, it's still one of the most cited of the 324 OSHA regulations that were violated last fiscal year, 1910-1030 ranked 51, according to preliminary data. So that means it was in the top 16% of frequently cited standards. Another good reason to focus on this training topic today. According to the regulation, the employer shall train each employee with occupational exposure. So OSHA jurisdiction extends only to employees. It does not extend to unpaid students, for example, who are not employees. The, uh, also, it makes no difference whether the employee is full-time, part-time, contract, or temporary. An employee is covered by the training requirements if he or she has occupational exposure. I refer to Temporary Worker Initiative, TWI Bulletin Number 6 for information on temp workers. An exposure incident is actual contact with blood or other potentially infectious material, OPIM, whereas occupational exposure is reasonably anticipated contact with blood or OPIM. In addition to, be, to being reasonably anticipated, the contact must result from the performance of an employee's duties, and you likely would not reasonably anticipate an office worker to have contact with blood or OPIM, but if you designate the office worker to perform first aid involving blood-related injuries of coworkers, then that employee is considered to have occupational exposure. 1910.1030 does not cover Good Samaritans. No employer can anticipate Good Samaritan acts, so no employer can anticipate these types of exposures. Anyone who voluntarily assists a person at work is not covered unless they are designated or expected de facto to assist workers. Unfortunately, OSHA does not tell you what jobs or tasks have occupational exposure. So you have to make a determination whether your workers 
housekeepers, maintenance workers, security personnel, or any others have occupational exposure by definition. The occupations on the slide may have occupational exposure, but not necessarily in all cases. So you may be wondering if one of your staff members is qualified enough to provide the training and you need a trainer that's knowledgeable in the subjects covered by the training elements uh, listed in the regulation. This trainer must also be familiar with how the training elements relate to your workplace. You don't have to have a healthcare professional do the training, but an OSHA inspector will look at the specialized courses, degrees, or work experience of your trainer if that inspector finds any deficiencies in your training program. If there's no one qualified at your location, you may need to send workers out to get trained or bring a trainer in, as long as that trainer meets the qualifications. While the provisions uh, for employee training are performance-oriented, with flexibility allowed to tailor your program to the employee's background and responsibilities, the training elements listed in paragraph G2VII of the Bloodborne Pathogen Standard must be covered at a minimum. And some of these elements call for site-specific information. The training elements relate to the items that are listed here on this slide. Information and training are required at three points in time, at the time of initial assignment to tasks with occupational exposure. And this means prior to being placed in positions where occupational exposure may occur, at least annually thereafter. And this means at least once every 12 months within a period not exceeding 365 days. Uh, training should be provided on a date reasonably close to the anniversary date. If the annual refresher cannot be completed by the anniversary, you should maintain a record indicating why the training is delayed and when the training will be done. Also train when changes affect an employee's occupational exposure. So changes include modification of tasks or procedures or the institution of new tasks or procedures. The additional training may be limited to addressing the new exposures created. Ensure you provide bloodborne pathogens information and training at no cost to the employee during paid working hours. Other considerations in how to train comprehension. The regulation says your training content and vocabulary must be appropriate for your trainee, trainees education level, literacy and language. Format Audiovisuals, classroom instruction, interactive video, and online and computer-based training are good training tools that can be used as part of an effective training program. However, training the employee solely by means of a film or video without the opportunity for a discussion would constitute a violation. Similarly, a generic online or computer program, even an interactive one, is not sufficient unless the employer supplements such training with the site-specific information required and the trainer is accessible for interaction. During training, it is also critical that trainees have an opportunity to ask questions and receive answers where material is unfamiliar to them. Trainees must have direct access to a qualified trainer during training. However, the trainer does not need to be in the room 
Uh, OSHA's requirement can be met if trainees have direct access to a trainer by way of a telephone hotline. Email is not considered direct access unless the trainer is available to answer emailed questions at the time the questions arise. Sufficient hands-on training is also important because it allows a trainee to interact with equipment and tools in the presence of a qualified trainer and gives the trainer a chance to assess whether the trainees have mastered the proper techniques. Records of bloodborne pathogens training are not confidential and they're kept for at least three years from the date of training. Training records may be stored on site where they will be accessible for review. Providing bloodborne pathogens training does not just make compliance sense, it makes common sense. Uh, an employee's health depends on receiving proper training on the job. And once your employees understand bloodborne pathogens hazards, uh, taking safety measures will be a routine part of their jobs. The key is to train them before they are called to take action involving anticipated contact with blood or OPIM. And that way they can make the right decisions to safeguard themselves and their coworkers. All right, very good. Okay, uh, we are getting some spectacular questions here. So continue to send these in because uh, when we're not talking, we're looking at those. Uh, so we're on top of them. All right, uh, let's talk about, oops. I'm gonna get to the right slide. Here we go, providing PPE when engineering work practice and administrative controls are not feasible or they don't provide sufficient protection OSHA requires employers to provide personal protective equipment to their employees, and not only that, but to ensure its use. Now, PPE is equipment worn to minimize exposure to a variety of hazards. Uh, we all can, can kind of figure out what this is. Examples include gloves, foot and eye protection, hearing devices like earplugs, earmuffs, hard hats, uh, personal fall protection systems, electrical protective equipment and respirators. And, you know, we know that PPE is a critical and last line of defense against exposure to workplace hazards. So OSHA requires the employer to provide training to each employee who is required to use PPE. You can see those bullet points up there. Um, they have, this training has to include at least those. So when PPE is necessary, what PPE is necessary, how to properly don, doff, adjust, and wear it, the limitations of PPE, because all PPE does have some limitations, and then finally, the proper care, maintenance, useful life, and how to dispose of it when it's used up. The bottom line is each affected employee must demonstrate an understanding of these training elements uh, and the ability to use that PPE properly before being allowed to perform work where they need that PPE. Now, one thing here, the elements that are listed come from 1910.132. That's the general PPE training requirements. But the training elements in 1910.132 do not apply to electrical, electrical protective equipment or respirators. So in fact, respiratory protection has a completely different set of training requirements and elements at 1910.134. So 
So again, we don't cover those on the slide. You wanna look at that 134K if you're gonna do training for respiratory protection. And then you see, we got a couple more TWI bulletins, specifically two and eight for information on temp workers regarding PPE and respiratory protection training. All right, when do you have to retrain employees? Uh, well, as an employer, if you believe that any affected employee who's already been trained, for some reason they forgot some of their training or they maybe didn't understand it, um, you have to retrain that employee. Circumstances where retraining is required include, but of course not limited to the situations. You can see the four bullet points where there's changes that render previous training obsolete. Uh, maybe you change the types of PPE to be used and that makes the previous training obsolete. Uh, inadequacies in an affected employee's knowledge or the use of PPE, uh, assigned PPE indicate that, like I said, they haven't retained that required understanding or skill. Now, retraining is also required annually for respirators or when any other situation arises in which training appears to be necessary to ensure the safe use of that respirator. Tricia? Yeah, thank you, Mark. So before we move into our Q&A session, I'd like to once again mention our sponsor of today's webcast, JJ Keller Training. Whatever your company's needs, JJ Keller Training can help with 24-7 access to hundreds of online courses and streaming video training across multiple industries. If you miss the opportunity to, uh, or joined us late, uh, we're offering a free white paper of your choice when you request more information on JJ Keller Training. So use the poll on your screen and we'll be happy to send that out within the next 24 hours. And now I think we're ready to take your questions. Uh, Alan, uh, back to you. Oh, thank you so much, Trisha and Mark. Uh, before we start the Q&A, we want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey we're asking to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. And your input is important because it'll help us improve our future webcast. And thank you so much for everyone. You, there's a number of questions that have been submitted and they all seem pretty uh, good. So I'll start with the first one to Mark. Um, if you hire someone with prior um, powered industrial truck certification, must the new employer uh, give complete PIT training? No, we kind of mentioned that uh, about duplicate training. If, if you know, okay, if you're training an operator, you're going to know within a minute or two if they're pretty proficient. Now, if they haven't operated the equipment that you have, you know, let's say they run a stand-up uh, forklift in their previous job and you have sit-downs and you have to provide the training, but they're going to catch on pretty fast. No matter what, even if they did run a, a sit-down, you have to evaluate them. Okay, you're going to use your judgment on, okay, they, they really do look like they're capable, you know, they work in a warehouse, we run a warehouse, uh, but you have to evaluate them, that's going to be really easy for you to see if they are not uh, up to speed on something, and then you have to certify them, and that's that written certification, so you're really putting um, your neck on the line if, if you know, 
in, when in doubt, do it's better to do more training than not, but they do let, let you have an out there. Alan. Yeah. They're very, all right. Very good. Uh, Trisha, this is for you. If you keep the uh, safety data sheets online, do you have to keep a hard copy of the SDSs on site as well? Okay, Alan, uh, this is, how do I say this? You may, you might, it, it's, it's a, it's a kind of a complex yes, no answer. Um, when you take a look at the regulation, uh, 1910 to 1200, paragraph uh, G, number eight, it explains that, you know, the employer has to maintain copies of the safety data sheets. But then there's a little parenthetical statement here, electronic access and other alternatives to maintaining paper copies are permitted so long as there are no barriers to immediate employee access, blah, blah, blah. Um, but now, so you, let's say you're keeping them electronically. Now the question is, do you also need paper copies? Uh, well, the thing is in a OSHA directive, CPL 02-02-079, that explains that you also need a backup method. If the electronic access, you know, it goes down, the computers don't work, whatever, um, you need a backup method. So, uh, in that CPL, it explains the options you have for backups, and I would refer you to that. One of the options, of course, is paper copies, okay? Oh, great. Uh, Mark, this is for you. Regarding the duplicative training, what records uh, do you need to have to satisfy that the drivers met all three requirements? So, again, I would um, have to, I, you're going to start with the evaluation, right? You're going to talk to the guy or girl when they come in and you're going to determine if they can run the forklift. I would document pretty much everything. Every question I ask them, you know, have you operated a stand-up? Have you operated a sit-down? What type of loads did you lift? Were you trained in how to determine the load center? So the more documentation you have on this as to, you know, why you determined you didn't have to do all this training, the better. OSHA doesn't specifically say that, but again, at, with documentation, if it's not written down, OSHA really doesn't know that it happened. So you need to have something to put in their file as to why you didn't do additional training because you felt they were qualified. Again, evaluation, certification, you still have to do it. Alan? Yes, uh, this question is for Tricia. It is my understanding that HASCOM training is required annually uh, within 365 days, the last training date, at least in the state of Tennessee. Um, so what are your thoughts on this? Right. Uh, I'm glad um, this person brought that up because it gives me a chance to, to explain that, oh yes, Tennessee, I looked it up, annual refresher training under HASCOM. Um, Tennessee is a state plan state. Um, it is authorized by OSHA to run its own workplace safety program. And so in the case of state plan states, California, Michigan, Oregon, there, Oregon, there are a bunch of them, right? And state plan states have the option to, um, uh, they have to be equivalent to federal OSHA, but they can be more stringent. And in this case, um, they are, in the case of Tennessee, more stringent when it comes to training. So, um, and that occurs with all the training that we've talked about, forklift, lockout, uh, PPE, any of those. If you are in a state plan state, be sure to check your state regulations to see where or if they are more stringent in, in the way of training or any OSHA requirement. Oh, thank you. Uh, if 
uh, Mark, if uh, temporary staff workers hired with forklift uh, certification on stand-up um, powered industrial trucks, do I need to retrain on the host employers' PITs? If it is essentially the same of type of equipment, okay, so different manufacturers, uh, you know, like a sit-down um, forklift from one manufacturer, they all operate essentially the same, you know, they get, you know, the controls, uh, that type of thing. The issue here is if your controls are in a different spot or maybe they feel a little different, that is what you're going to have to train on. So when they come in, you look at their records from the temp agency, you see they're trained on the type of forklift that you have, but you still want to get them on that your forklift if it's different than what they've and let them run that in an area where they can get the hang of the controls and stuff, ask them some questions determine, you know, yes, that they're competent. And then again, um, in this case, since it's a different type of forklift, I would evaluate and certify them uh, just to be on the safe side. Alan? Yes. Uh, Tricia, what about a quiz after training? Will that show effectiveness? Right. So I did make a point of, um, in, in the way of HASCOM, for example, training needs to be effective. Um, and uh, the thing is, um, a quiz or a test is not required, but uh, it can definitely show whether your employees absorb the information. It can help you to determine whether you have gaps or whether you have, uh, you need to make corrections with your training or training approach. Uh, and, and so it, it can tell you whether or not your training was in fact effective. It's one method to do that. So yes, it's a good, uh, a, a, a good approach, but not required. This question is for Mark. Uh, does the trainer um, need to be trained on a specific brand of a, I guess, powered industrial truck, or do they meet the standard in, in general lift truck training. Right. Okay. So this is kind of like the previous question, it, the brands, if it's the same type of truck, if it's a stand-up or a, a powered um, pallet jack you, and you're running different brands and they're, they're used to, again, it's going to depend on the controls. Again, they all operate essentially the same. They have the same center of gravity typically. Um, but Again, it depends on what kind of loads that you're handling and what kind of loads that the uh, employees used to. So keep all that in mind. Again, training is dependent on you and your facility and more training is always better than none. So just make a judgment call. And as, as I always say, uh, evaluate and certify if in doubt, that way you have the record if OSHA comes in. Our next question for Tricia. What if we provide approved first aid, CPR, AED training to our employees on a solely voluntary or volunteer basis? Okay, so um, I imagine this, this person's asking about bloodborne pathogens training and what if they train their employees, right, in first aid and, and they said, hey, we've got this bloodborne pathogens training, it's all voluntary, you can come to our training and, and, and that. Um, the bloodborne pathogen standard at 1910 to 1030 does not hinge on whether you train employees in first aid. 
It hinges only on if you have employees with occupational exposure. And of course, occupational exposure is anticipated reasonable expectation of contact with blood or OPIM as part of their job duties. So uh, you could train every last one of your employees in first aid. That does not put them over the bar uh, for occupational exposure. What does is if you, let's say you, designate them as first aiders uh, on the job, uh, or you expect them de facto to perform first aid on the job involving blood or um, OPIM, um, it all hinges on occupational exposure. And one thing I would suggest when you're training all these employees in first aid, I would recommend that you tell them, just so they are, are not misled, that if they do come across I know it's it. People want to help, but when they come across someone with with an injury, a bloody injury, and that, um, tell them uh, if you are not designated, please contact the the, the employee uh, who is designated at our workplace to handle that. So the first measure would be to make that call. Um, so I hope that makes sense. <laughs> Yes. So it looks like we have time for one more question. I'll, I'll pose this one to Mark. Is it okay to have employees share PPE? Oh, probably not unless it's a hard hat that they're just going to put on real quick. People um, are a little sensitive about that. You certainly wouldn't want to let them use a respirator that hasn't been cleaned properly. Fall protection equipment like harnesses have to be fitted to each worker. Uh, that's why a lot of companies issue a fall protection harness per person. That way they don't have to keep adjusting it uh, where you could have a, a mistake if you fell, if bad things can happen. Um, you know, really, I wouldn't want to wear somebody else's earplugs. Uh, safety glasses, maybe if you wiped them off, but usually employers provide uh, each employee with the basics. Respirators, uh, probably not unless they're using them every day. But in that case, they have to be sanitized. And of course, they have to fit properly. There's a whole bunch of respiratory requirements for fit testing and stuff. So respirators, that's a whole nother thing. And uh, I think I'll just leave it at that. Well, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we have run out of time today. We want to thank our awesome presenters, Trisha Hodkovich and Mark Stromey, the entire team from our sponsor, J.J. Keller. And of course, all of you who joined us today. Take care and have a safe day.